Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. Conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, National Director of Churches of Welcome at World Relief, and today we're talking with John Acuff. John's one of Inc.'s top 100 leadership speakers, and for over 20 years, he's helped some of the biggest brands tell their stories, including brands like Home Depot and Staples. John's a New York Times bestselling author of nine books, including his most recent, All It Takes is a Goal, The Three-Step Plan to Ditch Regret, and Tap into Your Massive Potential. But before we talk to John, we want to remind you that if you're enjoying our interviews, it would help us if you left this review. Now let's go to Ed Setzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Dean of the Talbot School of Theology. John Acuff, wow. Like, we've known each other, like, a long time in, like, five versions of our own lives. Yeah. So, it's, uh, we both had a lot less gray hair. Um, we, you know, Nash Vegas days and all that kind of stuff. When, do you remember? I don't remember when the first time we met was. Do you remember? I saw you speak at Catalyst, but you were pretty famous. I was in the crowd. as just a humble guy there to learn um, from these giants. And you were there, and I saw you speak at Catalyst in Atlanta on the, the main stage, I want to point out. It wasn't a breakout main stage. And so wow. that was the first time I saw you. But then I think the first time was probably maybe 11 or 12 years ago in Nashville, in Lifeway. Um, we did your show, and you were riffing and doing hilarious jokes before it started, before the camera got on. And I was like, oh, I love this guy. So we've known each other and been in the same circles for at least a dozen years. Yeah, so you know that, um, like, I used to have this TV show, and you were on the TV show, and I remember that. Yeah. But what's what's also fascinating is, like, every place we did this no longer exists. They blew up the building. We did it in a basement. Yeah, we had a basement studio in, in Lifeway. The building was blown up, and then they yeah. built another building and sold that. So Lifeway doesn't, like, they're in, they're in Brentwood or Franklin with all the cool people. That's probably where you live is in Franklin yeah. with all the cool people. I live in Fra- – if you write books, you have to move to Franklin eventually. It's, um, that's what I heard. It's kind of a law. Like, they call it the Michael Hyatt effect. You just eventually <laughs> get to Franklin. So Michael Hyatt – so Michael – I did a uh, a coaching session with Michael Hyatt too. And so – and went down there, met with him. He laid out my life for me and I did some of it and I didn't do other parts of it. But but yeah, no, it's it's a whole different world in Nashville. I was, I was there – what was I there for recently? Oh, I was speaking at the Awana Global Summit. And, oh, nice. And it's just – Nashville just has a whole, it's a whole vibe. But anyway, that's, yeah. I love it. St- I think it's the best. I've loved, we've been here 13 years. I, I can't imagine leaving. So yeah, I've really enjoyed dude, being here. Dude, have you been to the West coast? The West coast is the best coast. I mean, it's like, yeah, I've, I've, know. uh, but the unfortunate thing is I've heard of the word taxes. Had I not, if I was young <laughs> enough to go, there's trees that look like palm trees. Like if I was impressed by that and not trying to provide for my children's children, just biblically, whatever. I would be more than happy to pay 58% tax or whatever the, so like, no, I'll visit. We, what's <laughs> happening now, I know I can name five businesses, Christian people like influencers who are now living in Nashville 181 days a year because they grew up, they lived in California their entire life and are eventually like, can't do it. And now yeah. lo and behold, they're in Nashville, just one day over the accountant's tax line. Wow. Wow. Hey, thanks. Thanks for uh, thanks for pointing all those terrible things out. But I do like how you snuck yeah. in a reference in Psalm 128, verse one, that yeah. you'll see your child blessing to your children's children. That was really this is sometimes yeah. people forget. You said right, this for like, church leaders. I love Jesus. Is. I love <laughs> Jesus. I love church leaders. My dad's a, a pastor. So like yeah. these are my yeah, people. But you're kind of like you're like John Maxwell uh, 
3.0. Like John was a pastor ministry. I mean, you were yeah. you know, a little different path, but now, now you're like, you're like crazy speaking to all these places, right? New York Times bestsellers and in and around business. And the newest book, of course, is All It Takes is a Goal, the three-step plan to ditch regret and tap into your massive potential. But I keep having you on, even though you keep writing these business books. I know you love Jesus and I know you've got helpful content for pastors. So let's talk, where did this book come from in the mind that is, uh, and, and we could go back in that mind with stuff Christians like. I mean, there's like a lot of crazy from that mind. But from the mind of John Acuff, where does this come from? Well, so every idea I do comes, I look for three things, Ed. I look for a personal connection. So I have to be personally connected to the content. I look for a need. Do I see people need this in my community, in my neighborhood, online? And then I look for the marketplace. Is there a place for me to fit in with this idea or has it already been overdone? So this one started, we are at a college campus, Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama, where I attended, love that school. And we were there with my wife and my oldest daughter touring the school for her. And my wife said, wasn't college the best? And I said, no, it was a train wreck. Like she was having this experience of four years of amazing memories. And I was remembering how I had wasted that opportunity and how I had wasted that potential. And I felt this real sense of regret. But as we drove back home to Nashville, I had written a book about soundtracks, these repetitive thoughts we listened to and essentially about mindset. And I knew I got to choose my thoughts. And I mean, that's so like, I didn't come up with Renew Your Mind. I didn't come up with Think What's Noble, What's Beautiful. But I knew, okay, I can't change the four years of college, but I might have 40 more years ahead of me. Can I change that potential? And so then I worked on that and then I tested the people need it. So there's a PhD at MTSU, this professor, Mike Peasley. We asked 3,000 people if they feel like they're living up their potential and 96% of people said no. So then I've got the second thing. I've got a deep heart connection. I've got a real need. And then I went to the marketplace. And when people talk about potential, it's fuzzy. It's holistic. It's not practical, tactical. And I said, okay, I can do a funny, practical, tactical, how to tap into your potential. And then I had all three of the things. And I think a sermon series is the same way. I think every leader can go, okay, I love it, but people don't need it. Great. That's a hobby sermon. No one needs that. Like no one needs it. Oh, I love it. Um, people need it, but it's already been overdone. That's a cake pop. If you tell me, Ed, I got this crazy idea to do small cakes on sticks. I'd be like, dude, I'm so sorry. They already had a Starbucks. So that's already been overdone in the community. And so that's what I looked at, at kind of my Venn diagram of an idea I'm willing to invest in. And that's how this all started. Fascinating, fascinating, and I and I, I love the fact that it's got research. We're going to get to some of those things. You know, when I was when we were hanging out in Nashville, I was running Lifeway Research. I love the research that that kind of undergirds the whole conversation. But I got to also, you said make it personal. Let me be a little personal. I graduated high school barely. Like yeah. uh, if I would missed another day, I wouldn't have graduated. I, it's a, I had a high D average, which is kind of hard to get a high D average. That means yeah. you've got a lot of people below the line, a lot of people above the line. Barely got into college. My SAT score ended up getting to a to to the school. By the way, graduated eventually with a doctorate from Samford. So we have that in common. Beck Taylor's the new president there doing a Love great him. job. He's great. He's great. Okay. So, so like for me, even going to college, I was still unsure what I was doing. Uh, but then some things grabbed a hold of me and I got more focused and, uh, and some of that was a goal. And that's part of what you talk about to kind of get to that potential. So let's start with how do you define potential and what did the research find about uh, well, how many of us are living up to you? Kind of said in the poll who said they weren't. Well, there was another stat too that I thought was interesting, but I define potential as the gap between your vision and your reality. So the vision of how you thought life would be or what you could do and the reality of how you're currently living. 
And a lot of people die in that gap because they feel shame. They go, it's so far. I'm not the parent. I'm not the leader. I'm not the pastor. I'm not the business owner, whatever. And my version of that is, no, that's just potential. Look how much potential you have to tap into. And as you work with goals, you eventually get to overlap that. That's what everybody's experienced at some point in their life where they felt like they were living in the moment they were supposed to be in. And so that's how I define potential. The second stat that was interesting to me was that 50% of people feel that 50% of themselves is untapped, which I use a metaphor of, that's like half of us are walking around only opening half of our Christmas presents every year. And like, would that make for a happy home? Would that make for a happy church? Would that make for a happy leadership? Of course not. And so my version of potential is, hey, let's go open the rest of the presents. I mean, from a biblical perspective, I love the 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 um, parable of the rich landowner who goes, here's five talents, two talents, one talent. And I think a lot of leaders, what's interesting to me about Christianity is I keep running into leaders in Christian circles that have broken soundtracks about success. And so they self-sabotage because they grew up with this idea that to be like Jesus rode a donkey, you shouldn't be successful. And so they're hiding a lot of their talents because they think, well, that's what God wants me to do. He must increase. I should decrease. I'll use less and less of my talents. And I'm much more of a, no, the five talent guy doubled it. And there was a party after there was like, there was a celebration, the two talent, there was a party. The only person that we're seen as going, Hey, they should have done something differently is the guy who hit it. So let's grab a shovel. Let's find those talents. Let's dig those up. Let's do something big and amazing with those versus hiding them. Yeah. It just, it seems that we're in a season when I think pastors and church leaders are sort of unsure how to even respond to the thing you said, because it's like, We've all seen very talented people whose ability blew them up before their character was, they weren't ready for it. They, their character yeah. wasn't prepared for the success that they received. And so, you know, if I, I can see a lot of people who lived up to their potential and blew up because they didn't develop their character, their spiritual formation and more. So how does that slot into the oh, constellation of things we need to think about? That's a great question. So I, I guess I would say the thing that God keeps pressing on me is focus on excellence, not growth. Because excellence leads to growth. When I obsess about growth, now I'm outside of his will. I start taking so shortcuts. Give, give growth. What are you talking about? What kind of growth are you about? Personal growth or numerical growth? Any what kind of growth sort of growth where I get, a, I get number obsessed, where I go, okay. I get, it has to be bigger. It has to be bigger. Like right. anytime the, like, the driving force in my life is more, I'm stepping away from what he's called me to do. Where, so for me, like, I would say, okay, and to a leader that says that is, hey, I think the challenge there is what happens is we go, that person, like, I wouldn't say they lived up to potential. I would say they gave into the sinful side of ambition, like right. somewhere along way, like they weren't living out of who they were built to be. They started, they started idolizing that they started like drinking from the adoration of that. And then I'm like, I'm somebody who's done that. So I had, I had a conversation with a really successful guy's probably worth half a billion dollars the other day. And he said, I met you uh, 12 years ago. You don't remember it though. And I was like, no, I don't. And he goes, that's because you're still covered with the glaze. And I was like, what do you mean the glaze? And he said, you had that glaze of ambition, that glaze of fame, that glaze of chasing things. So as someone who's done that, I get that. Like I 100% get that. But what happens is a pastor or leader who does that goes, therefore, I should play it safe. Like mm. one of the greatest broken soundtracks in my mind is most success, more problems, more money, more problems. And then in the Bible, it says God adds blessing with no additional trouble. Like he blows the, he grows the thing with no additional trouble. So I either go, okay, that's possible or he doesn't understand how it could be. But for me, like 
we this is one of my favorite topics is how do you be fully engaged in your gifts and not become a jerk? How do you be fully engaged in your gifts and not blow up your church, not blow up your, and there's so many different ways to do that. I mean, I, you know, one of the things I say a lot is leaders who can't be questioned end up doing questionable things. So every church leader I've ever known who imploded couldn't be questioned. They were isolated, whether it was, and sometimes like, I know, I know a leader who I was like, man, this dude is making terrible decisions. What is going on? And somebody who was on his staff said, oh, you don't know. Um, I was on his staff and there was somebody who stole millions of dollars from the church and it wounded him so deeply that he said, I'll never trust anybody again except my four family members. So he didn't enter the isolation tank because he was a jerk. He entered it because he had a ton of hurt, didn't process it. But I'm a big believer that like you can be fully engaged in your gifts and fully engaged in your God because he gave you the gifts. I don't, I don't like the idea that that's the only path. And I'll give you one more story because this one's blowing my mind. I haven't put it in a book yet. I should really be going, here's page seven of the book, but conversations with you are fun and they go the places they're supposed to go. I spoke at an event um, about three weeks ago in Franklin where I live. And I mentioned it was to a big nonprofit, a ministry. This ministry is amazing. They do retreats for pastors in New England because it's a really tough area to pastor. And my dad planned another church in New England. So you talk about a heart event like that I felt connected to. So I, I mentioned that I had put together a 9-11 Porsche Lego set. I just, I said, you know what? It's one of the few things in my life that has instructions. I, it's very calming for me. Like it's a dorky hobby. I know. But I said that I get off stage, a couple in their late fifties come up to me and they go, Hey, we have a 9-11 here. Just take it for the night. Bring it back tomorrow. And I'm like, I can't take your Porsche. Like I can't, what are you, what are you even talking about? And they go, this is what they said to me. If we can't share it, it has too much power over us. So we share it oh, all wow. the time. And right. that was such a beautiful picture of generosity and success. They were wildly successful people. They had a 9-11 and they shared it because they knew if we can't, I've squeezed it too tightly. So apply that to leadership. If you can't right. share the stage, you're squeezing it too tightly. If you can't blow up a young leader who's talented and like you're squeezing it too tightly, like, there's a million applications. And I, w I took the valet ticket. I went to the valet. I handed it to the kid. Kid goes, what's the name on the account? I, I didn't know. I didn't even know their name. Oh, and he gosh. goes, ah, it doesn't matter. Brings around a 911 turbo. I drive it home. And I laugh the entire way with God going like, you're such a generous, wild God that like, I just get to do this. But that for me, the more I'm around successful Christians who have open hands, the more I realize it is possible. And I would, I would say some leaders haven't been around people that had open hands and then they see the public person who falls and they go, the only path is to fall. So therefore I'll always play it safe. And no one wins if you use less of your gifts because you mm -hmm. think the only path is to fall. Fascinating. Fully engage with your gifts and fully engage with your God. Again, the book is all it takes is a goal, the three-step plan to ditch regret and tap into your massive potential. But you may have noticed that, that uh, John keeps mentioning soundtracks. His prior book is called Soundtracks, A Surprising Solution to Overthinking and Overcoming Toxic Thought Patterns, Take Control of Your Mindset, uh, and really found that helpful as, as well. Okay. So um, then, you know, I got to tell you, John, as someone who always heard, always struggled in school, always... I, I have, uh, when someone says I'm not living up to my yeah. potential, it just yeah. takes me back to seventh grade, eighth grade, 11th grade, yeah. college, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I almost don't want to hear that anymore. Yeah. Yet, I almost wish, I was talking to my uh, my mother recently. We've had her, her husband die. We're talking about, our, we're having these childhood conversations. And um, 
you know, I just didn't have a stable home. I wish somebody helped me live up to my potential. Mm -hmm. So I have this love-hate relationship to the phrase, you're not living up to your potential. So for people like me who heard that, didn't like it, but also recognized how important it was, how could I, how could I embrace the importance of this potential idea living out? Because you, you talk about things that prevent us from it. How might I embrace it? Well, I mean, what was fun for me, so I come to this moment and I don't feel like I, I'm I've lived up to my full potential and I hit the same wall everybody hits. I hit this thing called the vision wall where you think you have to have your whole life planned out. So we've misinterpreted great books like Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, which says begin with the end in mind. We've twisted that into until you know the end, you can't begin. Or Simon Sinek's start with why into until I know my why, I can't try. And so I felt stuck. I didn't have a big plan. I didn't have a 20-year vision. And I felt stuck in the moment. So all I did in an airport in Augusta, Georgia, was write down best moment list on a piece of paper. And I started to write down things that had lit me up in the last year, in the last five mm -hmm. years, in the last 10 years, small things, big things. And I just created this list. And it was the opposite of everything we're told to do because people say, don't look back. You're not going that way. We're also, as a culture, obsessed with sadness and trauma. We over like for every 100 scientific studies on sadness, there's only one on joy. As if you can't learn from joy. As if we don't have a God that's like, rejoice. I say again, rejoice. Like, I have to say it twice because you're not going to do it. But so for me, like, and every small group I'd ever been in, every time we do a couple's like, get to know each other, it's six weeks of the saddest things that have ever happened in our marriage. It's always, oh man, like every men's group I'm in, I did a trauma egg. Very rarely have I had somebody go, I want to talk about what's lit you up this last year because maybe there's some lessons in that. So I write this list. And it taught me self-awareness. It taught me gratitude. And I started to teach other people how to do it. And everybody had the same exact experience. You automatically go, I want more of that. Like, I want more of that. And you go, how do I, going forward, how do I, and it turns into this life plan, this unexpected, okay, I want to do that more often. And then from there you go, there's categories to them. There are experiences, relationships, accomplishments, stories. And, you know, every moment fit into one of these categories. And people started to go, Man, I like when I made a list of 100 things I really cared about, 60% were accomplishments. But growing up, I was told you shouldn't be an accomplishment person, like must be nice. That's greedy. A Christian doesn't care about accomplishments. So I've been holding back. But my heart, when given the room to write down what was true, said accomplishments, accomplishments, accomplishments. And you go, wow, how do you turn those into goals so that there's more of them? So the doorway into it's really easy. It's a really fun off on ramp. And people ended up writing 100, 200, 300 and discovering these really fun moments that most of the time they had forgotten. And, and again, it taught you, it teaches you so many things about who you really, I call it the most honest personality test because every personality test I've ever taken, I have some should in there. I should care about people in a different way. Like the questions are like, when you see an old lady, do you help her? And you're like, no, I know what they, they want me to say. Yes. And so this was just based on your life. And so that's how you ease into it as you go, what do I really care about? And then how do I do more of that? Okay. So that's going to press forward in, in goals. And, but you also talk a lot about regrets. So yeah. how do we stop living in regrets and maybe just take a little longer and go from regret to setting goals as well? Yeah. So the, the funny thing to me is no one changes just because. Like that's what – so I've, I've been writing about goals. Like I'm such a goal nerd um, for the last 10 years, just obsessing about this. And I still haven't met a single person that said, I just decided to be disciplined today. I decided to not have regret today or to, to have persistence. What happens is one of two things. There's either 
something terrible that happens, an involuntary crisis, there's a divorce, there's a job loss, there's a car crash, there's a health scare, whatever, or they bump into something they really love doing and they want more of that. And so for me, that's what my experience was. I, when I started blogging, which is where we first connected, I didn't decide to get myself unstuck and, and cause I was, I had hit a career ceiling. I didn't like my job. I was stuck. I had a lot of regret about the career choices I had made. I didn't decide, okay, I'm going to change this regret. What I did was I discovered, wow, I kind of like blogging. I wonder if I blogged a little more, what would happen? And then all of a sudden the joy of that started growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I didn't wake up earlier because I was disciplined. I didn't watch less TV because I was disciplined. I just looked at my time like hours, like they were logs and I wanted to throw more logs into the fire. So my thing is like, I want to help you find a goal you love so much it makes Netflix for it. Like that's to me like the joy of the Lord. So a big part of regret is that versus going, okay, I'm going to deal with all these regrets one by one and going, okay, but what, what does my heart really cry out for? What do I really love? And how can I make more time for that? What does that look like? And then as far as like some tactical things you could do, I think a conversation with a friend is a good one. I think a friend, a good friend is a mirror and an archive. So the mirror point is they reflect back to you what's really going on. As you say, like, hey, this is, I regret this. I'm a terrible person at this. They reflect the truth. The archive is they tell you, they remember things that you'd forgotten. So we've all had a friend where we've said, this is the hardest thing I'm going through. I've never done anything like this. And they go, wait a second, I'm going to open this archive and remind you of this thing God brought you through. And that was you. Like you, like this is your pile of rocks, like the Israelites to remember this was you. And so I think that's a really tactical thing you can do. And the other thing with somebody who's really overwhelmed with regret is for me, I always say paper shrinks regret. Like paper shrinks regret in your head. It's massive and tangled and big. And I'll go, we'll have you put it down on a piece of paper. Like, can we, can we actually look at what the regrets are? And often we're just allowing regret to live in the domain of our head where it's massive. And we haven't taken any tactical ways to go. I'm going to list it out. Like, I feel like I have 10,000 regrets. I might have seven. I can deal with seven. 10,000 in my head is impossible. I can work on seven. And so I think there's a bunch of tactical things you can do around the topic. You know, I think I remember you at your, maybe your, some of your larger regrets when you mentioned that, you know, the direction you were going. I mean, some people might remember, you know, stuff Christians like that was sure. kind of your, your, I don't want to say shtick. I guess I can say shtick. I had my, my, my shtick was funny videos for a while. Um, so, and then you know, it kind of goes really, I mean, we talked at some, I remember having a conversation with some of the bottom of that regret. And now you're looking back, you know, what would you have liked to say um, to John Acuff at the bottom of that regret, the job you had wanted, didn't work out, all that sort of stuff blew up. What, what would you have said then? And is it, and maybe it's some of the advice in your book, but I'm interested to see. No. So, I mean, I think I would have said, um, talk to wise people that are further ahead. Like I mm -hmm. always tell people we have access to time machines. They're called adults who have been where you're headed and will say like, I've been to the future. Here's what you need to know. So I would have, so for me, regret isolates. You're like the crazy thing about regret and loneliness is loneliness and regret go, you need to spend more time alone figuring out this loneliness. And then you just get deeper into the loneliness. So I would have said to that, whether it was 22 with regret or 34 with regret, I would have said, Hey, I, go get in a little bit of community, not crazy amount, like join, like, I don't, you know, I wouldn't have joined a men's group in that moment, but like ask somebody you look up to, to go to lunch and tell them one thing. Don't spill your whole, like I wouldn't make it hard or another easy way into a mentor relationship that I teach all the time is 
right? Email somebody you respect and ask them one book they'd suggest you read. And then here's the wild thing. Read that book. And then a month later, send them the three things you learned from that book. And that's going to go, oh, there's skin in the game. You have a million people, Ed, that go, I'd love to pick your brain. And you go, oh, I wrote a whole book about that topic. If they don't read the book and then write you back and go, here's five things I learned, you know, they, they weren't going to do the work that you suggested anyway. So that's okay. So I would, I would have said, get into relationship. Um, I would have said, um, go to counseling. Um, that was a big game changer for me was going to go into counseling. Um, I would, I would have said, uh, you know, journal more. Um, and I probably would have said like, read Psalm 23, like versus I was a read through the whole Bible guy. And there's parts of that where they became, it became a performance and it became like less of a heart connection and more of like, I got to check Leviticus off a box. So I probably would have said, read Psalm 23. And fortunately I set forever in um, the prodigal son store. So that became mm -hmm. in my low moments, that was my lifeline. And I noticed things like the thing I noticed in there that still blows my mind. And maybe I've said this to you before is that the father never talks to the son. Like the father never says a single word to the prodigal son. And that really blew my mind. If you read the, the, par the parable, he gives him the money when he asks, doesn't say a word. When he comes home and he embraces him and then says, bring the fatted calf, get my robe. Doesn't say a single word to the son. And so for me, all those times where God feels quiet, I now go, he, what if he's not mad? What if he's not judging me? What if he's got me embraced and he's just too busy planning my party? And that, so like, I would have said, spend more time in certain Bible passages and really, really let them kind of impact you to the bone level. Love that. And um, so what, how do you, you talk about the fuel, right? Yeah. Um, what fuel is necessary for us to continue to, to kind of step into our gifts, continue to follow God with our whole heart, whole soul, whole mind, but simultaneously, what fuels us to step into and thrive in our gifts? Well, so from the God perspective, I always say to people like every, every leader, cause that's what, who we're talking to right now, every leadership meeting you do should have somewhere in that meeting. Plus we've got God have the best strategy, be excellent, be amazing. Like, and then go, plus we have access to the creator of all creativity. Like the guy who made the jellyfish, we know that God, like read Proverbs where it's like wisdom here, 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 here. And so for me, like that's a big fuel, but in the book, I talk about what I see leaders struggle with is where they use crisis and chaos and stress as a fuel. And that I, I wrote about that because I got to that spot. So I signed the biggest book deal I'd ever signed about four or five years ago. And it, it should have been this moment of celebration. And my wife, Jenny, said, I don't think this is going to work. And I said, well, why not? She said, um, you're a jerk for the two years when you write a book and you're a jerk for the two years when you sell it. And she didn't use the word jerk, but I really try to clean it up for your podcast. I keep it TBS edited for television. Um, and she, what she was saying was that for me to get the book done, I had to use chaos and crisis and fear as my fuel. And I was miserable to be around. And she said, I'd rather you be a happy plumber than a miserable writer. And I guarantee there's some spouses that would say that sentence just using different words that would go. I guarantee there's some sons of pastors that would say, I'd rather you be a happy dad than, than a miserable pastor because you're, you're becoming a miserable dad at the same time. And so I had to spend a lot of time detaching myself from chaos as a fuel because what happened was I saved a situation like 12 years ago and I had this soundtrack that I learned, which was I can function in a crisis. It's not a bad soundtrack. It was true. It was helpful. It was kind. 
But then if you don't deal with your thoughts, if you don't treat them on purpose, we had, the brain has something called a negativity bias. We lean toward negativity. And my I can function in a crisis turned into I function best in a crisis, which is you can see it's evolving. And that turned into I need a crisis to function. And every leader listening to this has either been this or worked with this where we've all worked with leaders who are amazing at putting out fires. But what happens when there's no fires? They often feel worthless, and so they create a fire. And now you don't work with a leader. You're in the midst of an, a fire starter, an arsonist. And so for me, I had to go, okay, God, what are better fuels than chaos? What are better fuels than stress? What are better fuels than proving myself? I know a lot of executives who have proved themselves to dads who have been dead for 10 years. And there's no end to that. There's no, like, it doesn't matter the money. It doesn't matter the thing. So better, a better fuel, for instance, would be a craft, the craft of it. Like getting really excellent, like at the craft of doing a sermon. Um, that's a you know the community. Okay, like I really need to be plugged into a community. I talked to a pastor just the other day who hadn't um, preached in a while, and I said, "What was it like?" And he said, "It felt like being home." I said it felt like being home, and he used this one line in it that was the best line of the whole thing. And I said, I asked him about the line. He said, "That was ad lib because I just I was in the moment." And and so to somebody like that, I'd go, "You're wired for craft." Like, and we've all been around leaders who you can tell are using the wrong fuel, the fuel they're, they're into. I talked to a pastor who told me, John, I didn't recognize the thing I care about got taken away. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I used to be able to speak a lot in the role I was in. And then I got elevated to a different role and now I don't get to do it. And I didn't realize how much I needed that. And so he felt like his craft was missing. So I think craft is a great one. I think community is a great one. Um, I think both of those are better long-term sustainable fuels than something like anger, stress, cortisol, chaos, the whole list. Yeah, I, I do think, I mean, that to me was one of the greatest takeaways of the book because I can think of seasons in my life where I fueled from unwise sources of fuel. Yeah. Um, and even some of the things you listed, you know, like, like you know, Having grown up in a with a distant father, alcoholic home, you know, how do I prove this point? Someone asked me once, you know, why do you why do you have two master's degree and two doctoral degrees? I said I was trying to prove something to my father. Now, you know, I think that's that's a yeah. long time ago. My father and I are yeah. very close today. But you know, we still play those tapes, you know, back to your yeah. soundtrack thing. We still we still play those tapes. And a lot of pastors are operating on you talked about the chaos zone. I think that's yeah. helpful language as well. Or um, or you know, the the conflict zone. There's all kinds of places where it seems that pastors operate from. So you've been around enough. You've seen, uh, we've seen together some blowups that were pretty mm -hmm. significant blowups. Uh, what is the kind of fuel that you would encourage pastors and church leaders, just based on your experience, they need, that they need to tap more deeply in? This is an area where you don't tap as deeply in as you should. Let's talk about where to tap more deeply into this. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'll 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 share an idea David Thomas taught me. David Thomas is the co-creator of um Daystar, this amazing counseling organization in Nashville. And I asked him this question about, okay, what do I do with negativity, the stress, the, all the stuff that comes up, the chaos? And he said the problem is people want there to be a switch. Like is there's one thing you can do to switch it off. And he said, but that's not how life works. Life is a dial. When it gets dialed up, it's your job to dial it back down. So I would say to every leader, what are your turn down techniques? When you get into those moments, because there's going to happen. There's not something I can teach you as a leader right now that'll go, this will fix all your problems. I talked to a company just the other day and they said, we, our current problem is that we don't have enough inventory. We're going to fulfill that and then we'll have a price problem. 
And then the problem after that will be this. So you're going as a leader, there's, it's not that if you are a better leader, you would have no problems. You're going like part of leadership is going, yeah, there's going to be problems and they're going to take different shapes and I'm going to have to navigate them. So when those problems come, what would be on your turn down techniques? So like, again, I like to get practical and tactical. I'm always trying to say, what does the leader do with this on a Tuesday? What do they do with it on a Thursday? We've all been to the same keynote said where we get inspired and we go, how is that supposed to help? Like I have, what do I do with that? So I would say to a leader, just the activity of going, what are the 10 things, the five things that turn down my stress, that turn down my chaos when I get to that spot? And for me, it's, you know, a, a walk around the neighborhood is great. Running is great. There's certain friends on that list where I would go, when I talk with Ben, I had a, I had a situation that I felt terrible about that I just felt like I had blown. And my friend Ben on a walk said, hey, if you had stayed in that situation, would you have gone deeper into your ego or deeper into your heart? And I was like, that's a really, I said, deeper into my ego. And he goes, then yeah, I think, I think it's okay that you didn't get that, that opportunity didn't happen because you knew where you were headed. And he said, I would have, it would have made me sad because I don't think you would have valued these walks. You wouldn't have even had time for this. So like friends are that way. I mentioned Lego sets. I do Lego sets as a turndown technique. Uh, my wife will sometimes say, hey, I think you should go for a jog. And that's her way of saying politely, you're kind of a huge jerk right now. You need to get some of these endorphins out. So I think as leaders, sometimes we we don't, we run ourselves all the way to the edge and we don't add some of that self-care stuff. We don't have enough, like, where do I need to turn it down? And we go all the way to, to burnout. Um, and, and then we have to like, then we have to recover. I mean, it reminds me of Hamilton. Hamilton used to do that all the time after the, the Federalist Papers. He was sick for two months because he had burned so hard. And so my big thing is I'd rather you have long-term sustainable success. I want to see a leader at 80 who's still able to contribute, who's still like, you know, who's still able to give and, and it, I'm sure the positions change and all those things versus you go really, really hard, which our culture teaches, and then you burn out, and then we never hear from you again. And at 58, you get a different job. You know, I'd yeah. rather see you be in leadership for a long time. Yeah, the sad thing is we, you and I both know several people, we were working around around and alongside uh, a decade plus ago that that's been the case. Hamilton's a great musical, but it's not a great life to emulate considering how he blows everything up. Last question. Um, I, I, I said recently that uh, successful pastoring lately seems to be a series. Successful pastoring seems to be a series of successfully resolved crises. Doesn't mean the crises <laughs> have gone away, but yeah. successful pastoring is successfully resolving those crises. How do you, in the midst of that, because it's really, you know, the last few years have been like anything most of us have led through. How do you, in the midst of all of that, stay focused on some of the things that you're talking about goals and leaving behind regret and living to potential when you're putting out fire after fire? Well, I, I have to touch them a lot. Um, I can't put a goal in a drawer. Like if I write down a goal and then I put it in a drawer, it's gone. I like, I need, you know, it's funny. People sometimes be like, that's just a crutch. And I'm like, oh, I, I've done a bad job telling you how I am. I don't need a crutch. I need to be the guy who's strapped into the sled, getting skied down the mountain by somebody. Like I need that many tools. I heard uh, the CEO named Keith Cunningham say, I'm not smart enough or talented enough to be unprepared. And I love that idea. And so for me, when it comes to keeping my eye on those things, I need a post-it note on the wall. I need a big printout of the thing I'm doing on a wall. Like I'm a very negative 
cynical, sarcastic person by nature. I my like when people say glass full, glass is half full or half empty. I'm glass is half full of scorpions and somebody's going to steal the glass if we're not careful. Like my wife used to, this was always something with us. When we had young kids, we'd leave like a stroller on the beach to go on a walk. And I'd be like, we better lock it up. And she'd be like, if somebody steals it, they needed it more than us. And I'd be like, no, if somebody steals it, we got jacked. Like I'm very negative. I've just tested negativity and positivity over the years. And the, the ROI of positivity is so much better. But for me, I need a lot of tools. And so I do silly, cheesy stuff. Like when I'm working out, I'm listening to a sermon. Like I'm listening to an encouraging sermon because I'm, I can't, like, I can't starve my doubts. I can only drown them in truth. And so I'm going, man, when I'm driving somewhere, if I'm driving to my haircut, I'm listening to something. I'm, so I'm trying all these different things to go, how do I stay focused on this in the midst of it? And then I'm testing stuff. So I'll give you one test I did. I had a, um, an event I was doing with Marcus Buckingham. Super successful guy, um, lives in LA, like sold millions of books, strength finders, et cetera. And I knew I was going to be stressed out, like to be in the green room. And I knew that because the catalyst green room used to be the worst place on the planet for me. Like I was so insecure. I felt like I needed to connect with the right person. Like it gave me a ton of stress, insecurity, all the stuff. So I still have that in me. Um, it doesn't matter, nine books, New York Times, whatever. Like I still have that. So I was like, how can I change that God? And I felt like God was like, what if instead of trying to impress him, you tried to honor him? And I was like, how could I honor Marcus Buckingham? And I was like, you know what? Why don't I read his book before the event and just ask him quite like when I see him, I won't try to swell up and tell him my resume because that's my temptation. Like when he goes, oh, you've written some books. And I go, oh, I've written a lot of books. I'm going to read his book and then I'm going to ask him some questions about it. So I did that when I got to the event. The first thing I said to him was, hey, I think your recent book is your most personal you've ever written. Would you would you agree with that? And you know, green rooms, no other speakers reading somebody else's book. Like we're important. And that really changed the dynamic. So then I said, okay, that's now a question I'm going to test for 30 days as a goal. I'm going to every morning as I look at my calendar go, who can I honor today? And they don't have to be a famous author. They can be a podcast I'm on. They can be, you know, the person I'm going to see at dry clean. Who can I honor today? Who can I bless? That changes my stress level. So I didn't, Ed, go, how do I get rid of regret? How do I get rid of insecurity? How do I get rid of stress? I said, who can I honor today? And when I'm busy honoring Marcus, I don't have a whole lot of time to go, I hope I say the right. I guess I think I'm going to say something so wise to Marcus. He goes, I would like to buy 1 million of your books or I would like to put you, I have a TV show on NBC called Marcus talks to people. I want you to co-host Like, I don't know what my expectation is, but man, I had a much more enjoyable event. Like, man, I walked, I crushed the speech, felt great about that. And I also felt good in the green room. So those little things, dude, like, and then just being brave enough to say on a podcast or to a friend, like, oh man, I was so insecure in that moment. I had to hmm. really come up with a goal to help me deal with it. I didn't tell myself, Get over it. You just got to be stronger. That doesn't work for me. Little goals work, and it was really fun. And then now I made it part of my life. John Acuff, again, uh, helpful resource. All it takes is a goal, the three-step plan to ditch regret and tap into your massive potential. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ed. We've been talking to John Acuff. You can learn more about John at johnacuff.com. And be sure to check out his new book, All It Takes is a Goal, the three-step plan to ditch regret and tap into your massive potential. 
Thanks again for listening to the Sessor Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content from ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you find our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review. That'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.